Well, welcome everyone. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program. And, and you'll have, I hope, um, in front of you a sheet um, showing all our events this term on the future of the left. This is the second of six events and you'd be very welcome to come to all of them. Um, tonight, we've got Professor Richard Freeman talking to us on towards economic feudalism. Um, Professor Freeman holds a prestigious chair in economics at Harvard University. He's the director of an important project at the American National Bureau of Economic Research, and he's also a senior research fellow here at the Center for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics. He has a, an absolutely remarkable, I think staggering is not too uh, hard to say about it, a list of publications. And I won't belabor the point by even beginning to sample them here. But what I thought I would do instead is just um, welcome you in a slightly more personal vein. Because what's always struck me about Professor Freeman's work is his deep commitment to studying not just labor markets about which he knows a great deal, but labour, that is to say workers, that is to say people themselves. And much of his work, though there's so much of it that it's hard to generalise, has been about that. And in particular, it's been about um, giving, uh, well, about facilitating voice, that is to say uh, workplace participation or economic democracy, to workers, to employees in enterprises. And I think from some of your earliest work, um, notably the classic book, What Do Unions Do?, through to some of your more recent work about um, what workers want and what workers say, all of this is testimony to that commitment. And it's not just a scholarly commitment, it's also a, a commitment to facilitating this voice in reality. And Professor Freeman has a a long um, involvement in, uh, I've now forgotten what it's called, it used to be called the Harvard Trade Union Training Program, but it's now called uh, something broader, the Working Life Program. And that, that has, amongst other things, been about facilitating the ability of uh, trade unionists and others to try and expand their voice in the workplace. So, you know, in both of these ways, I think uh, Professor Freeman is, is, a, is engaged in a commendable um, scholarly and intellectual pursuits. And I'm particularly pleased, since these commitments are ones which I think we should all embrace, to welcome him here tonight. So thank you very much for coming. And um, we'll be, he'll be talking for about 50 minutes, and then we'll open our floor to questions. Thanks. <laughs> I'm going to use these, uh, the PowerPoint. I've got lots of pictures. So hopefully, we'll, um, no one will fall asleep for a while and stay awake for this uh, talk. Okay, it's going to be a bit depressing talk for the first, I don't know, 30 minutes, and then we'll have some, hopefully, solutions that will make us happier. Now, I'm just trying to see how, oh, just push that thing. Okay, this is the main theme. We've had an increase in huge inequality in, in, in market earnings. That translates into inequality in political influence. That leads to where we now, uh, both people in the US on the right and left use this term, crony capitalist uh, behavior. It's remarkable when you go to right-wing blogs and things to see that that's a big word that uh, they use. Um, and the, the goal, of course, if 
me and my friends is to preserve our incomes and our importance in society. And then that's what I think is leading to, to what I call the economic feudalism, where there are a certain number of very wealthy, very powerful people who are dominating the society. And it certainly is not Adam Smith's uh, you know, market at all. Uh, so I have this quote. The, the picture, by the way, is an Andy Warhol picture of Justice Brandeis. He's a US Supreme Court justice who had this very famous statement about you have a choice between democracy or concentrated wealth, and you cannot have the two of them. Uh, he, that statement was made the previous period of time when the US had uh, extraordinary concentration of, of wealth, which was preceding the Great Depression. Uh, the Gordon that's been quoted by the banker on the right um, is not Gordon Brown. Uh, it's the more famous Gordon, Gordon Gecko. Um, and that's from the movie Wall Street. And um, I, was, I, was, I was going over that to, to find a good quote or something to use. I didn't realize he'd actually said, you're, you're not naive enough to think we're living in a democracy. Uh, and we're going to talk a lot about some of the evidence on insiders having a special uh, play on things. So I broke the talk, broken the talk into uh, four parts. The, the first part are, I'm sure, facts that you have seen. And so I'll go through them. You'll see them in slightly different light. But everyone knows this big rise of inequality. Everyone knows that the financial sector has grown uh, extensively and has great power and influence. Then I'll tell you why I think this is producing something pro properly called uh, economic feudalism. And then uh, I'm sure you've all seen Haschen signs. Uh, everyone's seen them around. Um, and this is an economic Haschem, not a Haschem about dangerous chemicals or whatever else it is that they warn you about. And then I, 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 I happily will have a proposed solution uh, to, to this. Uh, first time I gave a talk in this area was at UCLA last April, and I didn't have a solution. <laughs> and people were asking me, the order? And I just said, I don't know. It's very depressing. So that's why I say it's going to be depressing, and then uh, I will come with a solution. Well, this is the, the rising inequality. Um, and what, what the people who have really brought this to the attention of certainly the Americans, but I think it's spread worldwide, uh, these occupiers. And we have the Wall Street occupiers. So they made a big deal of the upper 1%. And of course, my friends in the upper 1% say they don't really understand. The really rich guys are way, way bigger than us. And in fact, if you look at the figures, you find that the upper 1% gained, but it's the one tenth. Of, it's the upper 0.1%, so 10% of the upper 1% made off with extraordinary gains. I, I, I stopped the things at 2007, and it points out it, it, it came down 2008, 2009, actually came back up a bit in 2010, and it's still going up at the present moment. But that, the, the, I'm going to use, use the, uh, the, uh, those figures. If you just understand that a, a 10 percentage point increase in the income of the upper 0.1% translates into a 10% wage increase for everybody else in the society. 
everybody else. This is, this is one of these rare times when you, you, you say income distribution changed by so much that if you just brought the super rich down to where they were, in this case 1977, um, you, you would actually have given a, a real wage increase of 10% to everybody in the society. And that's remarkable, uh, I think. So who are these people? We had a study done by the, uh, actually by the, the um, uh, some people in the IRS together with some economists in, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the academic world. And they tabulated the, what these people were. So they're executives, managers, supervisors, financial guys, and real estate people. The real estate the, 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 the may, may no longer be as high as they, as they were. Uh, the, the, the data doesn't go into the, to the crisis period. But then I, I looked more carefully and it says, wait a minute, the 0.1%, that's also a bit wrong. The income follows what they call a power law. Where, where there's just a, a, there's a t long tail out there of people really making a lot. So half, 48%, half of the income within the 0.1% goes to the upper 10% of the, the upper 0.01%. The then you look within this 0.01% and ha half, 49% of that income goes to the 10% the in the head of that. So you have this sense of an income distribution that is just going insane. So it turns out the US Internal Revenue Service publishes, and it's done this for a number of years, the, not the names, it just says, here are the 400 US taxpayers, the top 400. I don't know why they pick the top 400, not 500, not 1,000. So I looked at that. And so that's the top 0.00028%. There's just 400 people. Uh, they earn 1.59% of the income in the country. It's, that tripled, that went up from 0.52%. 1992 is the earliest the data that, that, that they had on their, their website. They get 10% of capital gains, 4% of interest, 4% dividends, and it's 5,770 times average gross income. So when these executives get upset when you say they're making off like bandits because they're making 350 times the average worker, they're looking up and saying, wait a minute, there are these other guys who are making extraordinary. And then lest any academic feel comfortable about the academic situation, I don't know what the one here is in the UK, but in the US, these are Gini coefficients for professors across doctorate-granting institutions. So these are all places, there's research, and they're, you know, they're, 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 and you just see the Gini coefficients going up two, twofold. So in every way you look at the society, it's, it's inequality growing every place. It's growing among the upper 1%, among the upper 0.01%, dot, dot, and it's growing among people like um, academics. It's just, this is in, it's really astounding sort of, 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 uh, of change. I say this is kind of figures you, 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 you must have uh, see, seen in various places. In the US, finance did extraordinarily well in this period. Finance sector, share, its share of GDP went up to, from, up to 6%, uh, uh, excuse me, 8% of GDP. Um, and then to the right, this figure 2-1, it comes from the ILO. This is for all the advanced economies. And you see, not over the, as long a period, you see the same thing. Just finance, here's finance's share of profits, and finance's profits 
as a share of wage and salaries. So it just has been the growth of one sector that has extraordinarily become extraordinarily more important. And then at the bottom, I did these calculations to say, well, what happened to the people who work in a more narrow financial group, the one we think about as Wall Street, so security and commodity brokers. So their pay doubled relative to the national average pay. And then it just amazed me. You take the Wall these are not all working on Wall Street, of course, but the total pay going to security and commodity brokers is nearly equal to the total pay to everyone who works for the U.S. federal government. It's, it's just mind-boggling. You see the idea of, of importance or the magnitude. So this, the guys selling you the, you know, and making deals on Wall Street are, are now, they're earning as a group as much as everybody who works for the federal government. That's, that's pretty amazing. Okay, so, so this is just all, this, this has just happened. I get some figures for the UK just to say what's going on here. Well, here it's a little more modest, it says there. The upper 1% had about a 10-point increase. These are from a BBC uh, uh, presentation, actually. About a 10-point increase. But you'll notice that the 0.1%, it, 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 it actually it's, it rose three points. So that's 30% of the thing. In the US, it was 60%. So the, it's a little more evenly distributed among the upper 1%. And then the, 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 here the, the data went to the 0.5. They didn't go to the 0.001. And so, so it's a little more modest increase in, 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 uh, in inequality. The upper 1%, you see the graph there. It's, 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 it's pretty big still. And then there are some other incomes, that, including uh, that, that cover the things. And you see the, the magnitudes, uh, you know, large increase for the people in the 0.1% from 646,000 uh, to uh, over a million pounds. Oh, not, not quite the US. Well, if you, uh, are, you look at this and you're an economist, you quickly say, well, should we care? Let's just imagine that uh, the, the guys at the very top are just being super producers. They're just, they're awesome in what they do. The whole economy would collapse without them and they should be paid huge sums of money. I call that the efficient production hypothesis or explanation. And, and some of it is that they now have all the, the modern infor, uh, information, it should be ICT, information communication technology. Um, and that's given them greater control and ability and they're superstars. Uh, so then said bosses and financiers deserve what they get. And um, we better do what they say or else capitalism is going to sink like the Titanic. Unfortunately, we know from the, or, or, from the crisis of Wall Street that we, we did do what we were told and the, big, and the ship did crash. So it was a little, little, little dubious of this hypothesis. Just today's New York Times announced the coming of a new book by one of uh, Mr. Romney's uh, partners at Bain, which was basically, they claimed the theme of the book was the US needs more inequality because the guys at the top, it was the efficient production thing, except that the guys at the top aren't getting enough. So we have to give them more. The other, the alternative view 
is, is what I called it successful rent-seeking, uh, that these guys have control over these corporate governance, they control business against shareholders who increasingly are saying you shouldn't get all this, these huge salaries, um, um, and, and over government, and they extract what we think of as economic rent. Um, and a lot of it is through capital income, you'll see. And then at the heart of this are the banks too big to fail, and there's a, a famous thing referring to um, Goldman Sachs as the vampire squid that's strangling everybody. Um, and this is not, I did not pick on Goldman Sachs in particular. And, it, and you just got to keep feeding it huge sums. And I didn't realize that Mr. Rom, uh, Mr. Romney's ex-partner was going to have a book coming out. See, in the, you could go to today's New York Times. You'll see. Uh, it was at least the, when I looked. It was uh, uh, this morning. It was uh, It was right there on the front page, um, saying this. Okay. Well, how do some of these people make such huge sums of money? This uh, it, it shows you the way in which people are paid. CEOs in the in the U.S. If you go down to 1996, the blue line is salary. You go to 2010, the blue line is salary. It's a little bit higher, but it's not that these guys are making more salary. That's, that's not what it's about. Salary is often semi-capped for tax reasons at a million dollars. And um, the, the, the red line, or the, excuse me, the next line up, the, I suppose it's reddish, yeah. That's bonuses. Right? You don't see bonuses doing that well the last number of years. Um, the big way they make money is through options, is the green. And now that this, the share market has been going, you know, has been bouncing around, it goes into the orange, which is uh, um, deferred. Uh, 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 so, excuse me, this, the stock, actual, actual stocks received. Um, so what's going on is that people are making large sums of money through ownership of shares or options on shares. And that's capital income. Uh, so th they're getting their pay through capital income, not through normal, what you would say, as uh, 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 things. That's how you want to make money, is get it in that. This is a little busy uh, thing, but it just is an effort to try to understand what's behind these two views. And I, I wish the, Mr. the guy from the Bain was here or in the audience, because then we could have an interesting d debate. Um, I think the efficiency view, and I assume that he represents this in his book, but I haven't seen the book, uh, is that the executives are really the important decision makers. When everybody else in this thing you know, doesn't really matter, and so their marginal product, MP, is really high. They make the key decisions. Um, they also believe, this is pretty clear, at least in the academics who, who, would, who would favor this view, that you have an independent board that bargains with the executive over their contracts. And it's in a competitive market. So I'm bargaining with you over your pay, and the board sits here. They seem to forget that the board was appointed by the executive, that the board also gets some um, options and, and, and pay that's higher the higher the pay the executive is. So the, but, but that's, that's the, the thing. And then this ultimately solves the princ a principal agent problem and that they're always tweaking these, these contracts in order to get to more efficient solutions.
So they went to the, the options, and now they give them just plain lump sums of, of, of shares because that somehow is more efficient, that the, wherever, wherever they're doing is, more, is, is in a more efficient. On the right-hand side, I have the, the, the rent-seeking view. This is the, hey, uh, the, the teams of workers make decisions. And increasingly, of course, in a modern society, large groups of people work together. Um, and then the, here, the, the, the executives, the, the CEO or, or the top executives, they're more like managers and coaches. And we know that in sports, the star athletes get huge sums, but the managers and coaches don't make quite as much. And then there is the notion that chance is very important in outcomes. And we're going to see that as a very important way to test and evaluate whether this is all efficiency and we should just keep giving these guys more and more money because they're the, uh, or whether this is they're just sitting in a particular position and taking as much as they can. So I pointed out here, the, again, I already said, the executives control the corporate governance in this view. They appoint the boards. And then they hire Arthur Anderson compensation consultants. And I just started doing some work with one of these compensation consultants. And I was shocked that the people who actually do the work, they, they are clearly believe the rent-seeking view. <laughs> so I thought, well, you guys better be quiet. You're going to get fired if you, uh, if you go around saying this. Um, and then there is one thing that everybody agrees that they do. Um, and you can tell some academic stories why it really is efficient to do this. Uh, but um, th this is that they game the contracts. Whatever contract you give me, you're going to put in something about, if I report higher profits, I get more money. So I now go to my, my accountant, and we work hard at reporting higher profits. Everybody does that. It's, it's like uh, not, not, no one would deny that. Uh, and then they make use of insider information to manipulate things. And I'm going to give you some real evidence of that, not just say it in a second. There is another view, which, is, which I thought was the most interesting view of this. This is that the top executives are useless. Um, they, 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 they don't do anything at all. And, and some of the top executives I have known, I thought spent an extraordinary amount of time you know, going to charities and to, you know, being a good spokesman sort of for the, for the company and being good, good guys and so on. But then the, this notion is you can't judge their marginal product at all. They, they do nothing. They're useless. What really is is that by having this job at the top of a company, we have huge amounts of money, we can go golfing and, 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 and to charitable things, um, you create great competition. So everybody in the audience is competing to get into this job, and the organization is very, very efficient. And that's an interesting view of what, of what uh, goes on here. And I said it's, it's socially efficient in the sense of everybody's working real hard, but its individuals are all rent-seeking. They're all trying to get into the job where they have to do no work and are paid a huge amount of money, but it's positive. And then there is another... Uh, view which I put in between the two of them because again it, 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 it's how you interpret it. Uh, this is that if my company pays a lot of money, A, my executives go off and they give a lot of political contributions and that's very important. And anytime you go into a room and you're, you're, you're a guy being paid 20 or 30 million dollars, uh, people listen to you. Uh, you may say stupid things, but they'll listen to you, and they'll keep thinking, oh, he, got he must know something. He must be. It sounds like nonsense, but it isn't. <laughs> you know? um, and then there is another aspect that we'll come back to, 
which is that if you're a firm that pays executives highly and guys leave the government, it's very important that the guys who are, who are regulating your company or the Congress people understand that, yeah, if they make the decisions right, they got a really good job. And I, I do have one friend who's, who's an LSC graduate uh, who worked in the White House for a period of time and now works for Citicorp at 10 times his White House pay. Um, and you, I'm not saying that influenced him at all, but that's, everyone understands that's what, that is what goes on. And obviously, if you had been, been very much against Citicorp in some areas, you never would have gotten a, that kind of job. So we can ask, now I'm going to get some evidence on this, do these big incentives actually improve the firm performance? Do we have some evidence, real evidence, that it does? Most of the discussion analysis of this is about share prices. So people are looking at, do they raise the, the share price, viewing that as the correct valuation of the firm? Uh, share prices also can be manipulated, too, in some ways, at least in the short run. So we have some evidence that when the firm does really well, Executives also do very well. And then we have some evidence uh, from, from people at the LSE uh, that says not only do executives do better, but the average worker doesn't do, doesn't do much better. They do a little bit better, but not much. So it's clear when, when, when the firm is going zooming up, the, the, the executives do well. That doesn't mean they're causing it to go up. And we have one study that I don't fully trust, uh, that says when you give executives big options, actually the share price goes down. Uh, and that, so I, I, best I could interpret that is the firm was very lucky in one period, just lucky. Whenever the firm is lucky, they reward the executives a lot. And then there's a regression to the mean. So the next period, the firm is normal, and it looks as if giving them this huge reward is you know, causing, and, the, the, and there are some mean reversion in stock prices and things like that. So I went off to a big, big activity with a, uh, it's, a, it's a, a, a graduate student from Europe, from Switzerland, um, on trying to do this right. How can we really test that giving the executive more money uh, you know, produces good things? So we decided the correct measure of the incentive was how much the executive's wealth would go up if they could get the share price up by, so I think of it as a dollar. Share price goes up a dollar, how wealthy do I get? If I have a lot of these incentives, my wealth goes up a lot. If I have a little, my wealth doesn't go up. And we, in various analyses, we can't find much positive effects, if any. Uh, this doesn't seem to, to hold up. Then, it turns out, well, yeah, but they're bargaining over the compensation in some fashion. It's being set. And then finally, we found out um, it's, it's public information. You go look up executives hedging options. You will find that all the big banks offer them hedges. Now, I've given you this incentive package. And what do you do? You immediately go to, to, to the bank. And, and, and you, sell, you basically sell it to the bank. And they give you, you you've hedged yourself. So that if the share price goes down and you do poorly, you still make a chunk of money, but then you've lost the big incentive that the shareholders have given you. Now, since it's, this information is publicly available, you sort of sit there and say, wouldn't a board of directors act on this? And then I was told one of my friends says, oh, some of them are starting to act on it by not allowing an executive to actually 
It's because you're betting against your company in part to, to protect your, your, own, your own wealth. So I, I just would say there is absolutely no believable evidence that these huge incentives at the top are really motivating stuff. When the company does well, the, the execs do well, but no evidence that they're causing it to do well by these huge incentives. Um, now for some more positive evidence of the rent-seeking. The most interesting is a, is a paper from 2001 by oh, actually two students from my labor economics class at Harvard. They, they took a very interesting. They looked at what happened in the 70s and, and other, I suppose the 70s is the main period, but uh, when, whenever there was a big oil sh price shock, clearly the executive is not responsible for the Arab oil boycott. The executive is not responsible for, for, for mining, if you think about Australia, the mining prices going zooming up. That's, that has to do with the growth of a market. And they found the executives cleaned up on that. So here was a, a place where clearly they had no influence on the, the thing. Uh, and lo and behold, did that. The, after 9-11, a number of companies gave out large options to executives on the notion that this was a temporary shock and they then could clean up when the stock market rebounded. And they were denounced by the Harvard Business Review editor as sleazeballs and profiteering ghouls. And when you take that to people in the banking industry, they sort of look at you. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to try to make money. It's legal for us to do this. We did it. So there's no shame about, about uh, taking a national, uh, you know, they're profiteers in wars too, and so on. A lot of, we found in our research, we, we find sometimes options are given regularly, so like every, like a bonus, a January bonus, or, or Christmas bonus, I suppose, here, and, they, and, then, and then maybe a summer bonus. Then there's a set of options that suddenly appear at particular times. We call them unscheduled. They, they're not within a month of last year's options by any shape. What are they doing? Well, a number of them turned out that they're backdated, meaning at one period of time you could you had a two-month window when you would announce when an option was being g g given. You would wait till the end of the two months, and you would find the period in the two months that had the lowest share price, and you announced that's when I gave the option. Backdating. The we put a law in to say, oh, you only got two days. That seems to have disappeared because the law, so clearly what people were doing was saying, now, of course, a backdated option can't give you an incentive to produce anything. It's just money. Uh, so they were doing that. And so then there was a study that looked at what happens when the options go, quote, underwater, meaning the share price just fell so much. And let's assume for the moment it has not to do with bad management. Uh, it's just a lot of random shocks and the share price going way down. What do companies do? Well, if you gave a guy a big, a big incentive and the share price collapsed, well, you know, your first thing you might think of, maybe he's not or she is not such a good executive. And that happens occasionally. 81% of the companies act to restore the executive's wealth. First, they would reprice options until there was a accounting law change that made that uh, more tax costly. Then they shifted to some other option plan to avoid that ruling. Then they give unexpected bonuses. So when your option goes down, uh, so underwater, so you no longer have this great incentive, we start paying you more money. Um, um, that just has an interesting 
think about how it's going to incentivize you. And then student working with me just found that they, they actually will start raising salaries. So it all looks like you've reached a deal where you, you've agreed with the executive or the board that the, the, you know, to maintain a high wealth no matter what. So it says the performance thing just doesn't look good in any of these circumstances. Uh, when, when, the, when the share price or the company's profits go way up, the executive cashes in through the incentives. When they go down, let's say both cases, not the executive himself had no, re, no control over the situation, we don't let you suffer the losses. Mind you, you're still getting a million dollar salary, so the losses are in the extra stuff. We, 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 we find different ways, depending upon what the tax code and the law says, to reimburse you. So it sort of looks like uh, something. So there was this, this article in the, uh, the Goldman does have to have some appearance in this kind of st uh, story. Um, the New York Times had this article, which I cut out, and I thought, it's very interesting. Goldman was giving out 36 million stock options in December 2008. And they said 10 times the amount they'd, they'd given the previous year. It was the most they'd ever given. Uh, so I said, gee, what's going on? So I got hold of the, uh, the Goldman um, prices. And they are giving them in the valley, but of course they, 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 this is not backdated. Had they been really perfect, the, the, the Goldman share price dropped to its lowest point at $46.54. That's when you should have given all the options as you had complete control. But obviously they didn't know maybe it was going to, go to keep going down, so they weren't going to do that. And as it began going up, they decided for whatever you know, thing at, at, at a price of 78 Seven, uh, 78, it says here. They gave the, all the huge options, and then the price kept going up. So you see that and this is all legal. It's just timing the option. You want to get your option when the share price is particularly low, and then because then it's going to go up, and then you, you do this. So I thought, I thought, yeah, that looks like you know they couldn't backdate, but they somewhere they did made a decision as it started going up, it's going to keep going up, uh, etc. And they did this. So in one sense, this is everything that should make economists happy. Um, this is just what we would predict. Uh, the executives are wealthy, and I say like everyone else, I'm not privileging them as particularly bad guys or something. They're doing their self-interest. And they have, happen to have bigger incentives, huge sums of money they can make if they can wiggle around in certain ways. And they have more tools and power uh, uh, to, to get what they want. And so this is from Again, Mr. Gecko, which was greed for a better word is good, greed is right, greed works, greed clarifies, captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Um, and we should expect people sitting at the top of these companies with opportunities to time things, to manipulate the financial stuff. Some will do it illegally, but most of them will talk with their accountants. The Enron guys thought they were doing things or they tried to cover themselves in doing things, doing things legally. I'm sure a lot of, Enron, in my view, was, was, was not the bad apple in the, in the basket. They were just the, the, the tip of an iceberg where it was clearly illegal, as opposed to some of the others where it's more marginal, and some which are, you know, you're, you're within the, clearly the, ba the bands of the, of the law, but you're doing is manipulating things for your own personal benefit. That's called rent-seeking uh, by any, any uh, uh, things. Okay, that's the end of one. We have this inequality, we have this huge massive transfer of wealth, and it looks, looks to me at least like 
Um, a lot of it is rent-seeking. This is a statement by a, um, a, a, a radical uh, president of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, um, and when he made this, this statement, I've modified it slightly, as I say here, um, it shocked Americans because he, he was really concerned about this kind of, he didn't, wouldn't call it economic feudalism, but it was this military-industrial complex that he saw taking decisions. If you were a general in the, uh, in the army and you were purchasing things from a company, then you retired, and lo and behold, you became vice president of the company. <laughs> and, you know, dot, dot. So that, that's the nature of the process. So I just took his thing and just replaced military-industrial complex with, with by Wall Street and the super wealthy. And he warns us, uh, the only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can provide the countervailing power to, to assure that the country prospers together. So it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable statement. I mean, today he probably would be, for saying this, he'd be driven out of the Democratic Party. He was a Republican, but he wouldn't even be allowed in the Republican Party, uh, as, 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 as clearly an extraordinary. And then he was concerned about this idea of ideological communication. Uh, but I changed his words to say, funding of research by foundation supported by the wealthy few, which we see an awful lot of didn't exist when he was uh, uh, doing his thing. So this is now going to be the start of what I think the economic feudalism view is. It comes from uh, Mr. Eisenhower. Well, I don't know how much attention you've paid to the chief economists of the IMF, but I have paid a great deal of attention to them, and I have been shocked by what they say. The IMF has turned from being a, an establishment organization into a... Um, a semi-radical organization, in some sense. They really do not want to see the world go up to flames, even if the rich can get richer or somebody can get richer. So here is Simon Johnson, um, who quotes, gives the names of people, um, uh, and just says the flow of individuals from Wall Street and Washington. They financiers helped create the crisis and uh, they're using the influence to prevent reforms, correct. Then is Raghuram Rajan, who used the word, he didn't say it was crony capitalism, he says observationally equivalent. <laughs> and what just meant was he sort of wanted to be a little cautious that people wouldn't take what he said. You know, they might say, oh, he's radical, he's radical. And he's a professor at Chicago, he's not very radical in that sense, except he's telling what he sees as the, as the truth. So, so the, the, it, we go from Eisenhower to now chief economists of the IMF, and you suddenly see uh, it, people just looking out and saying, this is the way it is. I asked Simon Johnson, I said, well, when did you get this view? He said, well, if I'd beat all these meetings, and I would understand that the IMF would do what we were told by the U.S. Treasury often, and the U.S. Treasury did what it was told, depending on what the big companies told them they wanted to be done. So it, they were not operating in, the, in, this, in, in, in the way that they felt was correct. Now, what happens to the guys we appoint as regulators? I got, so I wanted to, to give a first, if you're a Chicago economist, I was at Chicago for a number of years, you, 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 you always say regulatory capture. And George, George uh, Stigler had a famous work on this. But then I found Ken Galbraith said it much more elegantly than Stigler in, in one of his books. He just said, this is what happens. Agencies 
mellow and in old age, after a matter of 10 or 15 years, uh, they become either an arm of the industry or senile. Uh, we want to get what the mechanisms are. Then, Brooksley Bourne, you may have heard her name or not. Now, she's now been awarded some medals of, uh, of, uh, of bravery from the, from the uh, actually the Kennedy uh, Institute. Uh, the, uh, I, I, off with her head, um, she dared in 1998-99 to say that there was some problems in the financial market, lack of transparency, excess leverage, and she called for prudential controls. She said, well, there's not, they're not, we don't have those. She got denounced in the, New York, in the U.S. and essentially fired. I mean, she was forced to resign. Bob Rubin, Larry Summers, and, and Mr. Levitt, who was head of the Securities and Exchange Commission at the time, came together to denounce her as, quote, casting the shadow of regulatory uncertainty over an otherwise thriving market. She was worried about all these derivatives. She was worried that we didn't know what the risks were because we had no measures of them. And she got essentially fired. Uh, um, and then this is from, a, the bottom thing is from a famous uh, uh, Evita. Um, because I think what happens in the, that was a period of time, the boom was on, the money was flowing, uh, 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 um, et cetera. And uh, I don't know, Ruben may have been thinking that he was about to, go, he was soon going to leave and go to Citicorp, which was one of the beneficiaries of this madness. And so it just says, when the money's rolling in, you don't ask how. Otherwise thriving market. Don't ask anything about that could be wrong with it. It's like saying the patient comes into you, they walk in, if you walk, you're healthy. The guy walks out and collapses. Uh, and don't keep books, accountants slow things down. It really was a, 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 an incredible kind of thing when she, she was the head of a major uh, US financial agency and she's not, she was not like an, I don't know, some ignorant radical, if, if, if you want to phrase it that way, or, or troublemaker. She was a very serious person, and, and, and her analyses and things were very serious and cautiously said, we better look into this, and they just squelched her that it was causing problems. Um, that's a, um, you have not been on K Street, that's a lobbyist. Um, and so I just go through here and I tell you, look, all these the thousands of, 35,000 lobbyists for Congress uh, we don't have 35,000 Congress people. Uh, we, 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 you know, we haven't, I haven't counted how many, I don't know, we, we have maybe five or 600 uh, senators plus uh, things. And they have some staffs, but that's probably bigger, or at least the same magnitude as the entire staffs of the entire U.S. Uh, Congress. Um, and these, these are the Congress ones. Then there are other ones in the, in the state legislatures and so on. The revol what's it's a word called the revolving door. Which, uh, 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 the people, what, what you do when you leave Congress is you get a job as a lobbyist. Um, if you leave a con congressperson's staff, you get a job as a lobbyist, and then you use your connections to, to have things. This is legal, and it's done. So dot, dot, uh, to 273 former members of Congress or heads of agencies. So I'm a head of an agency, and maybe I'm making, I don't know, $150,000. And if I just make my decisions, you know, board, you know, sort of tilting in favor of the industry I'm regulating, I got a great job when I leave, and, and that's and that's what, what happens. This is from a paper by uh, 
some uh, 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 at least Mirko is in the CEP. Um, it's coming out in the AR. It shows the income of these lobbyists when, for some unknown reason, the the, the senator or I think it's the senator in this case, uh, who who they were working for, unexpectedly left Congress. The income. The, 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 the line shows you. So they were, it just proves as strongly as you can imagine that what's going on is they're, they're living off their, I worked for Senator uh, Orrin Hatch, um, and I'm now out there basically peddling connections to Orrin Hatch and deals and whatever it is. If Orrin Hatch then gets defeated in the primary or he's pretty old, he you know, gets sick or something and resigns, my income takes a huge beating. No one wants to talk to me because I can no longer deliver the influence uh, and so that that that's that is what goes on. So I I was talking Friday with a former U.S. Uh, 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 congressperson who's a very major Republican figure at one point, and he said, "Let me tell you how it really works." And I said, "Oh, tell me." This is what he said. He says, "You, you go outside your office, and there's a bunch of of lobbyists on, on all different sides. Of the, you know, they're they're there waiting for you." They come up to you, and he says, this is what they told me. We got a PAC, a political action committee. We got a lot of money, more money than we had last time. We supported you. Here is this amendment. We stick into this bill, which you know is going to be like, my company pays no taxes, or something, something, thing. Uh, um, um, and you better get it into the bill tomorrow. We're certain someone will be running in your district favorable to our amendment, <laughs> meaning they're going to support somebody else if you don't do it. He said it's. He, he was you know, disgusted. It was like this was the. This was this was the. This is the operating. Uh, you know way, the way it operates. It's it's as corrupt. In a, all, most of these things are all legal. My lawyers, I have a good lawyer over there, and he told me it's okay to do this, that I can't be And what the lawyers will do, if, if you say the things in one way that looks like a bribe, they'll tell you exactly what words the courts have said. You can say it so it isn't. And this is not a bribe, as, at least that's told to me as congressperson. Now, here's one someone you know well. <laughs> Notice he didn't say, I never asked anyone in government for anything. He didn't say, I never had some of my minions ask somebody in government for something. Uh, um, so I'm sure this was written by a lawyer to say this, this, is, this is not perjury. He said, I never actually asked. Uh, of course, you saw what the US guys, what the lobbyists were saying. They didn't ask the congressman anything. They just gave him some facts. They had lots of money. They favored this amendment. And whoever favored the amendment was going to get their support, uh, uh, I, I, you know, that's, et cetera. OK. Now, th this, uh, I, I looked for a great quote for somebody who said, when I, the, the, you learn about society in crisis. Oh, it should be more than in normal times. You learn more. It says it right. OK, you, more was there. You learn more. And I couldn't find any famous person the wise person to say it. Um, so I said it. And so it's, uh, I mean, I, I mean, you don't want the Benjamin Franklin or I don't know, you know, Winston Churchill to say it, something like that. But I couldn't find anybody who did that. Um, I was very naive, and I think I was 
along with many other people in 2008, I really thought that the response to the financial crisis was going to be to clean up the brand of capitalism that we've had develop, which is full of this crony stuff. It's full of, of excessive risk-taking. It's just filled with lots of stuff. In the 1980s uh, savings and loan crisis, the U.S. government acted, and this was under Reagan and Bush, uh, they acted very sharply to cure the problem. There was a couple of thousand bankers went to jail. Uh, they took over the banks. They ran them. The federal government, or the, the FDIC, the branch of the federal government uh, that, that sort of was responsible for the insurance of these banks, ran the banks, got them back into a, a legitimate you know, operating procedure, um, and then sold them off to private Things. There was some concern over who exactly was buying them and, and things like that. But, but it all worked out pretty well, I would say. Um, I thought, gee, isn't that what we should be doing here? Um, I was told that, no, there's nobody smart enough to run these banks except for the guys who just destroyed the financial sector by running them. <laughs> and it's very hard to argue against that. Um, Except I kept thinking, you know, there must be somewhere two or three rungs down in your thing, some really bright young people who actually understand what's going on, who might be given a different set of incentives for, than you got. <laughs> but no, that didn't happen. Some of my conservative friends, I think properly, kept saying, you've got to create a competitive market with smaller banks. So if we're taking over these banks, giving them huge things, it's got to be that they divide into four banks rather than they've all merged up. I mean, the mergers have been really have been remarkable. If you have it, you were the bank in the US, suddenly one day you get a thing, it's no longer the bank, it's now Bank of America. And then you get another one saying, no, it's no longer this, it's, it's somewhere else. Uh, uh, um, so I said, maybe even break up the big banks. They didn't do anything like that, uh, A. And B, I thought the bankers, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm the only person. I thought, Jesus, if I just screwed up the whole capitalism, <laughs> I'll just lie low for a while and <laughs> be quiet. Just sit here and hope you don't notice me. I said, my $1 million paycheck, <laughs> I'm happy with that. Um, and maybe I would go and thank the taxpayers for bailing us out. Let me just say, I know of no U.S. bank ever to thank the taxpayers for bailing them out. And probably the reason is they don't think the taxpayers bailed them out. They used their own political muscle to get the bailout and the threats they made to the government that if they were gone, the society was gone. And I would think somebody would have stood up and said, I want to reform the system. I'm going to work from the inside. We have had no major figure doing that. So instead of this, I call this resilience of the cronies, it's just remarkable to me. Imagine that you... You, you nearly destroyed the society. I, it, if, if you're a company and, and some of the food you've been producing suddenly turns out to be tainted or poisoned and people are dying or, or getting sick, all, you, you're, you're going to apologize tenfold over. You're going to announce you're going to put in all kinds of things. And, and you know, in, the, in Japan, you might slit your, 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 your thing. Uh, these guys, nothing like that. It's truly unbelievable. So this was their answer. Um, but those are not, none of them are real bankers. Uh, I mean, they're all just pictures. But there was a, it was exactly the opposite. And with inside of, like, the day they got the first checks from the U.S. government to bail them out, uh, there was this article in the paper that said, 
they've now hired more lobbyists. They used taxpayer money to hire lobbyists to undo the reforms that they were trying to put in. I just, I, it's like one of these things you say, holy mackerel, they are on a different universe than, 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 the, than the rest of us. They got incredible help from the political system in addition to the bailouts. These are things you, you probably don't know. The one that stunned me was the Supreme Court decided that the people at Enron were convicted because they said the firms and the firm itself, I mean, the, the, the company and the public has an intangible right of honest services. And the executives who went to prison did, were not providing honest services. They were ripping off everybody. Supreme Court now said, that's too vague. Uh, and I think, oh my God. So that means Enron guys, if they were to go up, with, if they were to, someone does another Enron, they will declare, no, you can't get them on this. It's, it's too vague. Um, the Citizens United decision said that opened up the door for massive pouring of money. Congress, now it's a Republican Congress, the way they try to stop any reforms from operating in this sector is they do not fund the agencies very much. So a couple of the agencies get some money from fees, so that keeps them going. And then they delay appointments of officials. And there's, it's fascinating the way they will delay somebody's appointment um, and ultimately, if you really were, they know you're really against them, they will stop you from, from getting the appointment. They stopped Elizabeth Warren from getting appointed to, this, to the uh, uh, consumer protection. And then I was told a couple of weeks ago that what's going on now in Washington, a set of technical adjustments written by the bankers and the financial sector are being proposed that Congress do just to technically address some problems with the Dodd-Frank bill. And the person who told me this, he said, if they put in these technical adjustments, we might as well have just killed the whole bill on day one because there's all, it's going to be loophole after loophole after loophole. Um, and then we have an agency that just has been sort of discovered. It's uh, or discovered. It's, it's, it's got a lot of attention. ALEC, which is an agency funded by big business that brings conservative legislatures together in a website and has laws so if, if Iowa passes a law that looks like it's successfully restricting the voting rights of minorities or, 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 or people, that, that law immediately gets publicized to all the other legislatures. And um, they're now in some trouble because they also were pushing the, uh, the stand up for your rights and shoot somebody if, they, if you don't like the way they're walking towards you or something like that. And, so some companies have now been quitting this thing. Well, this isn't what we meant. We only wanted it just to make sure we pay no tax, you know, economic reasons. But there certainly has been the getting help. That's fine. Okay. Oh, the rate's not so fine. Okay. Uh, five minutes. I better move fast. Okay. If you're a wealthy guy, this is what you say. The upper 1% of taxpayers pays more than the bottom 95%. So once the wealth gets unequal, the taxes, this is income taxes, get unequal. Bang. Okay, there's your, some millionaires. Oh my gosh, only five minutes. I will really run now. <laughs> okay, I want to now just convince, because we have to get to the solutions. Otherwise, I will have let everyone down. Uh, and <laughs> that, that, uh, okay, here's the just claim. Inequality is bad for economic health. Not any inequality, just the levels we're at now, political health and intellectual health. And the economic feudalism is going to be a very hard state to overturn. People don't know this. Um, the FBI in 2004 
warned the Bush administration that mortgage fraud was becoming an epidemic, and they said it risked recreating the 1980s savings and loan crisis. That was three years before. And these are the data there showing that they were discovering suspicious activity reports, meaning they had reports of financial things that just didn't look right in the banks. The banks have to report this to them because they wanted to find drug money and they wanted to find terrorist money. They had no evidence of drug or, you know, it was a few drug or terrorist or things. Everything was about mortgages. The FBI was shocked and went to the president and nothing happened from President Bush. So financial fraud was going nutty here, it looked like, uh, from the uh, mortgage fraud. This is you guys, Europe. Uh, 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 and as of the Spanish from yesterday or two days ago or something, I think it was yesterday, May 1, protesting uh, the, the, the austerity with whatever it is, 20, 25% employment rate. And at the bottom, there's some people who argue that the inequality causes people to go into debt and leads to instability, but Sweden had the same problem with no inequality in the mid-90s. I'm very dubious of that argument, so I'll just say that. This is the lady to your... Whichever side it is, there left is um, that's Mother Jones. Uh, she publishes a magazine, or there's a magazine published in her name. That's a quote from what her magazine said, or there were two writers in the magazine. What's going to happen if we deregulated finance? And that's Alan Greenspan saying, "Oh, everything was going to be perfect. Don't worry." I, I didn't have to put a quote from him. You, you, you've heard him. Uh, and you just look at this. They predicted everything that was going to happen. Big mergers, concentration of power, too big to fail institutions that were someday going to like to drain the public treasury as taxpayers bailed them out to protect this. So it's an embarrassment, I think, to the economics profession and particularly the experts in banking and finance that a, a, a bunch of, quote, radical thinkers in Mother Jones had a correct prediction when our guys were telling you it's all perfect, the market, don't worry, the market will take care of any problems. It's, it's, I mean, it's a stunning kind of thing. If you had a bunch of, en of engineers telling you uh, the bridges are going to stay up and some, and some lady dressed in uh, Amish clothing, well, she was, she was a lady from the, from the 1890s, stood heads up and says the bridges are going to fall, and they all start falling. You would wonder about the engineers and what they know. And so it's, 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 it's this. We're almost there. Uh, uh, this is just, it's a, it just strikes me as it's a very peculiar world we're living in. This was from H.G. Wells. He called it a frightful queerness as comes into life. Where a bunch of, I don't know, old, big institutions, old people controlling massively amounts of money, doing things with it. Uh, and there's a wonderful book, Gladiator and Law, it's a science fiction book, which sort of predicts this kind of world. Okay. Economists have worried. They don't worry about anything like this industrial, this economic feudalism. They've always worried about the left doing things. So Hayek, and then I, I have the uh, Schumpeter. Schumpeter's wearing a hat like mine. I couldn't find Hayek wearing a hat, but I'm sure somewhere at the LSC there's a picture of Mr. Hayek wearing a hat. So they were deeply concerned about the future of capitalism. It was always the, the, it was a different danger than, the, than what I see, at least, is this, 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 this thing. Adam Smith had some brains about this or some in, in, insight into it. Uh, you can read that. 
And of course, Machiavelli just thought, yeah, this is natural. Sure. If you, have the, uh, if you have the money, you rule, and if you rule, you get the money. That's, that's the simple thing of a crony, whatever it is. Okay. And I have some thoughts. I'll, I'll skip over this. It's why we've ignored this possibility, where it really is important, because I'm running out of, absolutely running out of time. I can know that. So this is just some thoughts about that. And now I want to get to the conclusion. That's um, Ben Bernanke. Um, and this is, says, is this an economist on a good day? Well, so far he actually can smile a bit, but maybe this, later this year you will see him looking like that. And there are some other sad masks, because the normal way I ended this, I said the first time I gave this talk in this, in this vein, I ended it with, I don't know. It's, it's a powerful set of forces. They, 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 they can be absolutely wrong, and they're still considered wise people. But you never see Brooklyn Bourne on the TV saying what she thinks is going to happen. Uh, and you certainly don't see the radicals from other Jones, but you do see Mr. Greenspan, you, you, you see Larry Summers, you see et cetera. So it's, it's kind of a very weird, weird situation. How does it get changed? And now we have the, the, the happy, uh, or hopefully happy things. So here's this, this system. And then you probably don't know this young lady. Um, I searched hard to find where she had her, uh, her back uh, with a, with a thing scrapped on it. That was in the Washington Post. This is Molly Catchpole. What did she do? She went up against the Bank of America and Verizon and she beat them, both. She's 22 years old with, without much of a job, living in Washington, D.C., doing odd things to make a living. And Bank of America suddenly said if she uses her debit card, she's got to pay for it. She's got to pay to use her own money on her own debit card. She got very upset. She wrote a petition. It went basically viral on the internet. Inside of a week, Bank of America backed down. People were so enraged that, that on the Fox TV thing, there were people cutting up their Bank of America credit cards. <laughs> About a, I don't know, a month later, she gets Verizon. She's going to pay her bill. How? With, a, with, with the internet. Very easy. They say anybody who pays by the internet has got to pay them two extra dollars. That's the most costless, efficient way to pay, obviously. It doesn't require anybody. They, she, that's just another petition. Didn't take a week. It took like two days, and Verizon backed down. So suddenly you see, wait a second, some, one, one person can, can use the, the information. Really, the people being ripped off in the situation, she got it. I'll be, I'll be faster, I suppose. This is the Occupy Wall Street guys. They appeared uh, this, this fall. A very short while ago, and really changed the, the discourse. Then we have something that you may or may not know. Uh, there's a lot of people involved in uh, discovering scientific things, uh, just going to the internet. So the click to learn how you contribute to science by playing Fold It is people are pretty good at figuring out, it turns out, the shapes of proteins, better than the computer programs they have. And when, they, when a protein is, is misshaped, it creates disease. So there's a site where 200, 300,000 people go and play a little bit of a game, and they help solve the proteins. Remarkable. Galaxy Zoo is, um, a, it, it, they put on millions of pictures from the Hubble spacecraft. Here it's, I think it says 200, uh, 200, 250,000 people go and they, re, they look at the pictures and they identify new or different astronomical objects. 
They do this free. This is just doing it. And uh, they have discovered. They've made discoveries. They have had scientific papers written. And, just, and, and now there's something called the Zooniverse, which is a whole set of real science things online. I mean, you think about this. The people are doing things to, uh, you know, voluntarily. You, you, you or I. Science tells us there's a deluge of data. And now what we in the social sciences have to do is establish the same kind of data out there and obviously organize people, provide gaming experiences so that they can play and, you know, find the suspicious transaction. Find the executive who seems to be doing this or that. The, there is a big movement. The UK is involved. The, the US, we now have 36 countries have signed into the Open Government Partnership, which is get all the government data up. That means tax type data. That means uh, the, all the, 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 the forms of the companies. So you can go searching through. Find the footnote that most uh, hides the, the income being paid for. Mr. M Malamud is a, is, is, is a guy he was trying to run for public printer of the US. Because his whole career is about getting data online. And um, he runs one of these websites. There's a whole set of them. And so we suddenly have the possibility of having massive data online, citizens being able to access and make use of it, analyze it, play it the way the science people do. And then we have these petitions, and we have occupied groups. So you can really make some stink and protest and put a finger of transparency on. And, and just as an interesting footnote, some of the conservative Republicans who are against any redistribution of income you know, from the wealthy and are probably for they are also in favor of this kind of stuff because they figure you'll find out the crooked stuff that the Obama guys are doing uh, by this because all administrations do it. So here's my solution. Uh, it's we massive data. We crowdsource the analysis to people just the way the scientists do. So economics, finance, sociology students can go online, do some stuff, find some things out, and then use the internet petition and information and changes. As an economist, I think of this as creating a new market, a missing market in society, which is allows citizens to do the regulation and govern markets. Um, I said based on invisible hand principles um, to deal with information and power asymmetry. One of my sociology friends said, no, you should phrase it this way, building and coordinating new institutions based on new places. I don't care uh, uh, how you want to phrase it. <laughs> then you got the guys in the smoke-filled room who are currently making the deals. And then you got all these hands of people you know, doing something equivalent to what the guys did in astronomy, what they did in the proteins. That's the solution. So will we get this done? Um, anybody recognize this guy? Well, he's very famous now. Uh, obviously not in this country. Uh, he's a professional wrestler uh, who won some thing, and he started screaming, yes, yes, yes. And that yes, yes, yes chant has now moved across all the sports things in the US. So people go, yes, yes, yes. So I thought it was a good thing for this. Um, <laughs> and then, but will we do this before the next financial and economic collapse? And this I'm less certain about. I said, why not? Uh, 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 uh. So I'm now engaged in this process of bringing all these different groups together and seeing if we actually could get some coordination and activity, the open government people, 
the, 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 the game people were trying to get people to, write, to make games up so you would like to go and discover you know you get a, you get a prize you get some you know, I don't know what pots of pots of phony money or something if you discover who's the, who's the worst and then in the end have people use this I'm particularly hopeful that trade unions and consumer groups will use this in, in, the, in both in the petition sense and later in, in protest because you're going to be able to go and say look we know this is bogus we know this is not working out uh, it certainly will create a change that's Thank you very much, Professor Freeman. Um, I think we'll try and take at least a couple of rounds of questions, and I think to do that at this stage, I should take three or four people at once. So um, let me just start with this man here in the white. Um, On the idea of economic um, redistribution, I just wondered what you thought of the recent wave in South America of renationalization in Argentina with oil companies and Bolivia yesterday with the electricity companies and whether that's realistic for Europe and America. Okay. Um, uh, this gentleman here. I was very interested in your analysis, which is in terms of... Um, financial power, political power, and so on, and I'm convinced by that. But you didn't say very much about ideology. You said a bit about economic theory, which is linked to it. Um, in this country, we've just had a battle which we lost to prevent a bill going through to, national, to, to um, privatize the National Health Service. And a lot of people who are fighting it thought it was an ideological motivation behind the bill, whereas some of us thought it was actually more crony capitalism. It could, of course, be both, but I'd be interested in your remarks on ideology's role in this. Okay, and the gentleman in the glasses, and if anyone's interested, yep, the gentleman in the glasses. Hi, uh, I can understand how your uh, proposed solution around you know, crowdsourcing works as individual protests against individual items or but, um, issues or bits of corporate malfeasance. I don't quite see how it sort of shifts into creating a political movement that could you know, take power in an advanced democracy. Yeah, I'm interested in the answer to that question too. And um, that gentleman at the top, and then we'll take another round if you, if you don't feel you have to do everything. Uh, you, you didn't mention the Glass-Steagall Act and reintroducing that, which helps sought out the banks after the 1929 crash. And uh, I'd like to know what's happened to the, the lady chairman of the CTFC, who was fired by Greenspan and et al. She could play a useful role, I reckon. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the, the Latin American uh, redistribution, um, I'm slightly, I'm dubious of that that's gonna ultimately pay off or be successful. Uh, Argent I know Argentina very well. I don't know Bolivia. Argentina just goes through these these swings, and they always seem to overreach themselves uh, when they went uh, buying into the Washington consensus. They overreached by far and ended up you know, locking the peso to the dollar, and then that blew up in their face. And I have no, no uh, there's no problem in some sense taking assets 
from somebody else outside the country. I don't think it'll dry up the investments in the country, but I'm not, not sure how well the the Argentines are going to be able to run the thing because it's going to be incredibly politicized. And so it may be it'll, it, it's a short-run gesture, and they are going to pay some money too. It's been renationalized, and they'll work on some deal and so on. It, that doesn't strike me that that's... Uh, um, particularly, you know, uh, going to lead anywhere are very, very good. Um, and I'm sure it was a political gesture more than it was a, an actual uh, thing that they, that, that they are, the government's planning to make huge investments that the, the Spanish company didn't. The, the, uh, the, the Bolivia, I assume is similar, but I don't know much about Bolivia and the, and the, 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 the circumstances. Um, the, the question of ideology is, is, is it's, it's basically a failure of the left ideology to provide a counterpoint to the market fundamentalism, I suppose. Because a the, the lot of the, the left at its best has been, um, you know, gee, let's, let, let's see if it works, or let, let, you know, let's, let, let, let's be rational and thoughtful about it. Um, but it... it, it, it uh, I would have said that the right strategy has got to be to say, it's not just being thoughtful and kind of thing. We want to see proof that some of these market things work. Similarly to this renationalization, you'd like to know that somebody has actually got a serious plan of what they're going to do, um, et cetera. Um, I was struck in the Glass-Steagall thing. There was no simulation model. There was no analysis by anyone of, of what, what the likely consequences were. There was not like a study group sitting there in Washington, you know, going through the possibilities. They might have come up with the same decision, um, but they and that's what Mrs. Bourne, or Ms., I think she's Mrs. Bourne, uh, that's what she was asking for. She wasn't asking not to do it. She just said there are these problems. Let's study that. And they and they blew up on her. Just imagine studying something uh, when when people are making money in that market. You're stopping them from making money. Um, so that's a, a, a you know a, 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 so the, the left has to have a, a, a somehow a stronger ideology, and the, the only one I can think of that really is is prove it is is, is be much more evidence based. Uh, the right. It, it, you know, one stage you might have said they had some evidence. They've had no evidence for many of these reforms. I'm sure there's no evidence that the that the health service is going to work better in a private. And everybody who works in the health service is saying no. Obviously, their views are not considered valid, even though they work there. That seems pretty peculiar. And you can, of course, you can look at the U.S. and say, "Gee, that's a really successful healthcare system." Uh, you just give up, you know. I don't know, seven points of your GDP, and you'll get just the same health care you have today, uh, which is what, what we, we do. We have uh, much larger than any other country, and, and, and we get no better. We, it's not a terrible health care system. It just costs us so much more than it costs anybody else uh, uh, to do that. Um, and, and I'm not sure how willing people in because ideology often is not tying yourself to facts. It's you have a belief. But I, th I think we have the tools, or at least you can say, let's do a simulation, let's do let's do a serious analysis, and let's stick 
with what that analysis says, because then you can have at least a, an honest debate beyond ideo ide ide ideology uh, 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 kinds of things. Um, let me see, did I? Uh, oh, the, the question of a political movement. Well, I think uh, you start chipping away information and you will be able to create more political movement. I'm also very suspicious of all the politicians, be they left or right, that every one of them will look and say, how much are you offering me to, I won't say it this bluntly, how much are you offering me to favor your bill in terms of money, in terms of newspaper support, and the Labor Party certainly you know, did, did a lot of that here. The Democrats are entwined with Wall Street. That's why they didn't act against the banks, in my view. And so the only thing you can do with any, any, any group in a political movement is you've got to have this outside pressure. And the hope would be having information, having citizens who are not politically, uh, I'm a Democrat and I'm, you know, I will defend uh, Bill Clinton no matter what he did, or I will, I will, I will argue that Obama was right even when the evidence says he's not right. That's what seems to happen in those situations. If instead you, you have this, this outside group that is doing things, I think that can move the politics of either side. Let me just say, I was struck by the following. Um, uh, Strom Thurmond is one of the more heinous characters in US uh, history. Uh, uh, um, whether he was a racist or he simply acted racist because only the whites voted in his state for a certain period of time, who knows. Uh, but I once went to his office and I found these pictures of him kissing black babies. And I said, oh my, black, blacks must be voting in his state. <laughs> yeah, and he, he did the calculation. He needed 10 or 15% of the black or whatever, whatever fraction it was. And he'd go out there and he was being their friend. Um, so politicians, are, I think, are all like that. And so the, the, it's got to be the outside pressure put on them. And, 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 and where it is, the inf if you can do information and you can have a valid, people trust the information, meaning they can download it themselves and they can look at it themselves and, and make decisions. I don't think you need that many people to cause a big ruckus on the things. But you need people who everybody trusts as opposed to I'm in the pay of whichever political party it is and I'm trying to cover up, or, or you know, they, they all do this. I mean, it's, it's not a, a, a thing. So that this is the internet, the information, all these people were playing this game and you know, your one game would be discover what, what was going on with that Solyndra, this is the Republicans get mad about this, the Solyndra investment where apparently they put a large sum of money into an energy company that everybody in the new energy business thought did not have a very good business plan. And then it turns out, yeah, they were contributing money to President uh, Obama. Uh, the, you know, the, it just looked like an inside deal, which is typical Washington deal. Uh, but in this case, they, they took our company that didn't have a very good plan. Uh, that uh, could have, you know, it wasn't a zero plan. It wasn't that they weren't trying to do something, but it wasn't a good plan. Well, boy, if that information gets out quickly and everybody in the, that industry speaks up and it's on our website and people are saying this before the decision is made, you can, I think, move those kinds of decisions. Okay. Now, look, can I just get an indication of how many other people um, would like to ask a question? Because I, I won't be able to take them all. But let me start with the woman on the side there. 
Hi. Um, let's just say that uh, regulation requires um, a, a larger state or at least a larger, a larger government. And let's say the people who play the games, the crowdsourcing analysis that you uh, refer to, happen to be mostly Tea Party um, <coughs> uh, constituents. Um, how does that square then, I guess, with, say, you know, the contempt for pork barrel uh, behavior in, in Congress, but the, you know, educated technocrats that you need to actually run the government? Okay, and this um, man with the shirt in the middle. And then we've got this fellow over here. Yeah, I just wanted to come back to what you said about the influence of um, big money on politics. Um, I remember that uh, Stephen Levitt did an analysis of, um, of how much uh, campaign spending affected sort of... Um, two people running against each other repeatedly. And he concluded that, um, you know, a huge increase in spending um, due to backing from some big financial player um, hardly affected the vote at all, certainly, uh, certainly not uh, enough to unseat um, a candidate or, or change the result. Um, so, so it seemed from that that perhaps um, big money isn't quite as influential on democratic politics as as uh, one might fear. And, and just one other thing as well, that um, you said about not being able to trust politicians and, and that they were basically just after um, populism. I mean, that, there are some quite important counter-examples to that in the UK. For example, um, capital punishment was was um, was got rid of by a Home Secretary against overwhelming sort of popular backing for it. So, um, yeah, I just wonder what you thought about that. Okay, and we've got this gentleman over here. The gentleman with the scarf and the grey hair. Okay, it's so very simple. I just want to ask about the information. I mean, here in Europe, I mean, information belongs to the government. So it's difficult to get on information. How then do you think you can go towards this democratic information? Thank you. Now, I'm just going to abuse my position to pursue that point that the person asked last time about the political power. Um, don't feel you have to ask, answer all these questions. It strikes me that the thrust of your whole analysis of the problem was about rent-seeking, and it was the strategic location and position of power that the people who were acquiring this wealth had both in the firms, which were distributing it, and with respect to the political elite who were potentially able to regulate it. But your solution doesn't really address that strategic position of power. I mean, how is that to be counted simply by the greater distribution of information? After all, the ability of people to mobilise in movements and so on has always been there. Um, so it's still not clear to me where the power is going to come from to allow the information to be used to counter the power of the people who are paying themselves in this way. Yeah, fair enough. Um, let me start with the, the, the first one, then I'll end with, you, end with yours. Um, if the Tea Party people uh, are honestly analyzing the data, um, and that puts some pressure on government regulators, I see nothing nothing wrong with that. I mean, this is, it's going to be uh, uh, they actually want fewer regulations. Uh, that's their general tone. Um, 
And you know, if, if you actually show that the regulations are really costly and 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 and, and, and bad, let them let them try to make a case. I I I I, I do believe that that in this current world, the best thing is indeed to have honest information and uh, and honest debate. The Tea Party guys, some of them are very much against the big banks at this point. And what their main concern is, they, they use the word crony capitalism, they just think it comes from the government sort of holding up the, 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 the wealthy rather than the wealthy wiggling around. So I think there could be some positive things there. For the educated technocrats, I think that would be, having this kind of information out there of any kind and groups that are really interested in their decisions would actually vastly improve their decisions. I'm going to now have to make a, a thing and think somebody's going to point out, oh, I made this decision and I went to this company the next year. That's going to, going to, it's going to change the whole ethos. I'm, I'm being looked at by people and it could be people on the right as well as on, as on, the, as on, as on, as on the, the, the left. So that, that doesn't bother me that, that, that much. Uh, at, at, at this point, uh, I, I, mean, I wish the Tea Party guys spent more time <laughs> looking at evidence and so on, and, and uh, I think they would have to address this. Um, the question of the, 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 how, how important is big money? Well, what goes on is I give money to both sides. Well, that, that's what they do. That's the, so I get access, etc. And the money pours in. Let me give you, uh, pours into. Uh, people on the key committees. Let, let me give an example. Scott Brown, who's running for the current senator uh, from Massachusetts, he refused to, he was the key vote on the Dodd-Frank bill. He refused to vote for one reason. The original bill was going to charge the banks for the regulations. You know, they were going to have to pay for the regulatory agency fees. And he said, no, that's a tax. And he got Five billion dollars taken off. That's now paid from everybody else. Um, he's getting a lot of banking support in this election. Now you know he'll win or lose, you know, because there's support on the on the other 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 side as well. Barney Frank, who got a huge sum of money in his last election from the banks. You sort of say, why? What's going on? Well, this meant he would look a little more kindly towards them, even though he's on the, the other side. So I think the, mo the money may, may not show up as much you know, in, in who gets elected. But uh, we do understand you gave money to me, and it helped me in this election. I think it did, because if I didn't have it, maybe I would be really outspent by the other side. Not that. That's, that's in any case. Uh, um, yeah, capital punishment things, because you have a parliamentary system which is quite a bit different, and you can always do some bills. The American people didn't want the, uh, the, the, uh, the bank bailout, and times when the legislature feels that's what they're elected to do, to, to make a decision even if the, the popular thing. But we certainly want them in most cases to respond to the popular things, so that's what we have a democracy for. Um, then there was a question about the information. Oh, I think you can go to some of the websites that I put down you, you can digitalize and put things up, and it is being done, and governments are committed to this. The question of how committed they will be as the information gets more and more close to the actual decisions 
is 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 a question. But this guy uh, Carl Malamud got the SEC all of the financial records that they report uh, to the government are on a are available. You can and they're in you know they're in a form that you can download and make use of. The Thomson Reuters company here has gone through all the SEC insider trading data. Every executive who does an inside deal of some sort, the top people, they have to report the financial transactions to the SEC. I have that data free because Thomson Reuters provides it to some universities. And so we can analyze. And, and, and any, I'm not analyzing the trying to find bad things. I'm just trying to understand what on earth is going on. There are millions of options being given. Millions. <laughs> and so that, that's government data put up. This, this man, Mr. Malamud, was obviously a real pusher in doing this. But, and so there have to be a couple of people. Act, who, but the governments, once they've committed to this, I say that now 37 governments have signed in, it's obviously going to get, there'll be some problems. I mean, Norway has the most remarkable open information. My ta if I'm Norwegian, my tax form is on the internet. The Norwegian guys told me this. I was like, I was like can't be. You actually, no, it's on. Uh, um, every Norwegian, so, so I can check on how much money my neighbor is making? Yup. <laughs> now, for, that may, some of us may think that goes too far, perhaps. Uh, but it's clear that, that, that you know, society, you can decide to, to do that. You also can do in the government, and the U.S. government does this. I uh, am an unpaid employee of the U.S. Uh, uh, Department of Commerce, uh, the Census Department, so that I can look at, um, I don't call it secret, but confidential government documents. Uh, and, and there will be reports of companies, uh, tax things. I can I cannot take any of that information out. I can analyze it, and then the government looks over what the analysis is and says you've not broken any confidentiality. So I did an analysis of the income of everybody in this room, and I report back something about the income for the group or you know differences between people. I can do that. I just can't name you got this amount, which the Norwegians do. Um, and the U.S. government is deeply committed to that, and I'm sure the British government is also committed to this. Um, and but you have to keep pushing on them because the governments, yeah, you know, I don't want you to know what happened in this room. I don't, so you, you you could just when you have congressional testimonies, there's been a big fight over making the videos and the transcripts available immediately. So we have a video of the, of the thing, we have a tra transcript. That means people can see what was said, and somebody can use that information to try to influence the government. That, that, that's probably, on, on the, 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 the power issue, which is a very difficult uh, one, because I see the only, I, I, I don't see us dislodging these people easily. <laughs> I don't see it very, but we can certainly change their decisions because they, they they are acting if they if they they're acting in their own interest and if it suddenly becomes their interest and uh, to behave a, a bit better i think they will example nike was was the bet noir of the uh, of the anti sweatshop movement um, there were a number of protests 
Nike stock fell one period when people were really afraid that all the young people would turn against Nike. The, the head, who's one of the billionaires, the, the guy who owns, owns uh, a large share of Nike, uh, he lost, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars in a week. Shortly thereafter, <laughs> Nike suddenly became the good guy. And people swore to me, because uh, I was part of some Harvard thing we are trying to get, everybody who produces Harvard things should tell us where their factories are so you can find out if they're treating workers badly. And the, the guys would say, the, the Harvard people thought, said, no, the companies tell us they'll never do this. It's a trade secret. And I walked out of the room with someone uh, more experienced than I, and he said, bullshit. He said, they're all produced in the same factory in China and Indonesia. There's no secret. Everybody in the industry knows who's producing what. What do you think this is? What a lie. He said, only academics would believe. And I said, no, not academics. University administrators would believe this. And it turns out now many companies do that. So you, you forced a change in their decisions. You didn't necessarily dislodge them. Um, the idea if we gave share, the shareholders now are voting a reasonable amount of times in the US against these excessive, what they view as excessive pay increases. The law right now says all they can do is give an advisory vote. The companies are getting a bit of a message from that. So there's nothing that says a corporation, we couldn't say, you're incorporated under our law. The shareholders have to approve not just given advice. We 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 can we can make those kinds of 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 of, of, of changes. So I I think it's all of, it is in that sense incremental. But if, as long as you see the parties move incrementally in the, this direction, they didn't do the, the the deregulation and all the conservative reforms. They didn't do them all at once. That's been a a forty or fifty year project, and then it, I would say it overreached, and it crashed. Um, doesn't mean it's all bad, but, but largely we know it crashed, and so there's obviously a lot of bad there. So the same thing is on the other side. You've got to move. Uh, the problem is, uh, that's what my last thing that I'm worried about, is that we'll have another crash before we actually get the thing more rectified. And then I don't know how people are going to react. Okay, well that uh, example about Nike is a, a nice uh, upbeat note on which to end. Can I ask you all to uh, thank Professor Freeman for a characteristically ebullient presentation? <laughs>